This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers in both the House and Senate will be going back into session within the hour. HPR's government reporter Ryan Finnerty joins us to talk about how lawmakers plan to address the state's budget shortfall. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Catherine. So what's on the agenda? The, the main focus of this three-week session of the legislature is going to be spending uh, roughly $600 million in remaining money from the federal CARES Act that was given to Hawaii. Uh, This was the big coronavirus pandemic relief bill that Congress passed and gave out uh, a lot of money to each state and to uh, large cities around the country, billions to each state, um, to cover unexpected expenses related to the pandemic and responding to the pandemic. Um, Under a plan that uh, lawmakers released last week, most of that money is going to go towards things like supplementing uh, state unemployment payments, rent assistance for uh, residents who rent their homes rather than owning them. They're also going to be improving uh, health screenings at airports and offsetting the the cost of child care uh, and purchasing uh, about $100 million worth of PPP or PPE rather to uh, distribute to essential services like public schools and nonprofits that are working in the community. Um, so that will be the main focus. Uh, but there is also, as you mentioned, uh, a pretty substantial hole in the state budget that they will also have to look at. Everyone listening might remember that last month, they uh, lawmakers attempted to solve that they had uh they've set aside about a billion dollars from uh funds that hadn't been spent they basically reallocated it uh so they didn't have to cut any spending but that wasn't quite enough to cover it all there's still about 400 million dollars uh that a a gap of 400 million dollars that they need to make up and cares act money can't be used for that those the, the money from the federal government can only be used to pay for unexpected expenses, not already budgeted uh, spending items from state and city governments. So lawmakers will have to either reassign other existing funds or uh, approve the borrowing of money to pay for those expenses. Um, so far, they have expressed their preference to borrow that money um, but what that means is that the, the legislative agenda that they announced in January has been drastically changed. Um, you may remember that uh, lawmakers, leaders in the House and Senate, and the governor unveiled a, a pretty substantial package of legislation uh, that was targeted tax cuts and spending initiatives aimed at reducing the local cost of living. Those are largely now on hold, according to House Majority Leader Del Albaladi. The fiscal situation has completely changed. So I know that there are calls uh, for us to, you know, continue to talk about minimum wage, the EIT tax credit. Uh, those are very unlikely to move because the, the situation has just changed so dramatically. Um, I will say that we are continuing to look at the early education bills. So, but but it's still very preliminary. That's why we kind of need this week to really kind of dig in to see what has fiscal appropriation impacts and what what doesn't. So how do they plan to address the shortfall? They, as I uh, mentioned there, they've so far expressed their preference, state lawmakers, for borrowing the money rather than uh, cutting, cutting spending, which would most likely be accomplished uh, through at least some use of furloughs to the public workforce. Um, when it comes to where that money could actually come from, there's a couple of options. The Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, has uh, a what's called a municipal liquidity facility. It has these different facilities that lend uh, lend money to uh, other banks. Even uh, private companies can can uh, access it now, uh, and also state and city governments around the country. Um, and the the lawmakers have authorized the governor to borrow money uh, to to plug that budget hole. Um, there's also the option to go to the private bond market and, um, and cover some of the expenses that way, particularly the annual uh, contribution to uh, state 
workers' pensions could be covered through through bonds as sort of a, a temporary way to offset that. Um, and, and so, so far, it seems like that is what's going to happen. There will be uh, the money will be borrowed in some form. Um, Four hundred million is is not a small amount of money, but um, in terms of the overall state budget, it's not a huge percentage. So it's um, it is a, a manageable amount, um, and that would allow the government to avoid furloughs and pay cuts to public workers for now. Um, and that's been very encouraging to labor leaders uh, who say uh, they wanted to really avoid furloughs like we saw during the 2008 recession. Um, one of the people I spoke with was president of the state teachers union, Corey Rosenley, and he told me that uh, the union is very pleased so far with lawmakers' efforts to avoid furloughs. You know, we've learned from our mistakes in the past when we had furlough Fridays. And we know the devastating impact it's had even a decade later. You know, not only did we have an impact on our students, but even now it's had a long-term impact on the teacher shortage that we have in Hawaii. A decade later, we have seen the consistent drop in teachers. And what we've seen from the data was is that it scared off a lot of potential teachers who were in college at the time from ever entering the profession. The leaders in the in the legislature have echoed that, that uh, they recognize the long-term damage that was done by furlough Fridays um, and, and want to try and avoid that. The sentiment expressed by uh, HSTA, the teachers union, was echoed by HGEA, which is the non-teacher union for public workers, and they added that there will be a lot of other services besides education that would be impacted by furlough Fridays, everything from uh, invasive species control to uh, homeless outreach are, are handled by uh, state funds and some state workers. So um, everyone seems eager to avoid furloughs. Um, the issue is that it's very unclear how long this recession is going to last and how much money the state can actually afford to borrow because uh, if, if lawmakers and the governor do borrow the money from either the Federal Reserve or the private bond market, they have to pay that back with interest. And that means that at some point they're going to have to spend public money on that, that debt service. And the tourism industry is going to be depressed for at least a few years, uh, according to most estimates. And tax revenue is going to be depressed along with that. Um, so they, they're very cognizant that um, if they borrow too much money, they may not be able to pay it back, which could have some pretty serious consequences. Everyone seems to be hoping that Congress will provide another round of financial assistance to states and cities later in the summer uh, that would not have to be paid back, like this CARES Act money. But that's not a sure thing. It's going to be a political football. Um, and so they have to kind of move forward with uh, a plan for securing those funds uh, in the absence of any kind of assurances from Washington. Yeah, and I know uh, HGA was telling its members this weekend that uh, their bills uh, for their raises is up for, I think, Wednesday uh, in the queue, so they'll be watching to see what happens there. Uh, thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing, Catherine. That was HPR's government and public policy reporter, Ryan Finnerty. You can read his stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. And now it's time to take a look across the globe. The World Health Organization calls for more accountability from world leaders after a week of sharp rise in cases globally, as Brazil joins the United States in being the only nation with over 50,000 confirmed deaths. Here's the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday, the 22nd of June. I'm Valerie Sanderson. The WHO calls for political leadership after the biggest daily rise in global cases. Brazil becomes the second country to pass 50,000 confirmed deaths and the tennis star under fire for holding an exhibition tournament. The World Health Organization is warning the pandemic is still accelerating and will have profound effects for decades to come. It's recorded the biggest daily increase in cases, 183,000, as many countries ease their lockdowns. The head of the WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says the lack of political leadership poses a greater threat than the virus itself. The world is in desperate need of national unity and global solidarity. The politicization of the pandemic has exacerbated it. Ultimately, the pandemic has shown that we are one humanity. None of us are safe until all of us 
are safe. More than 60% of the new cases were in North and South America. Just two days after passing one million confirmed infections, Brazil has become the second country after the US to register more than 50,000 deaths. Our correspondent Katie Watson is in Sao Paulo. Brazil has hit two grim milestones in a matter of days. But not even these numbers are prompting the president to change course. Jair Bolsonaro says little about those who've lost their lives. Instead, he keeps repeating the message that Brazil cannot stop. The economy should reopen and the country needs to return to normality. But there's no normal when there are more than one million infections and 50,000 people dead. All the while, the numbers keep going up and up. The government has extended the ban on foreigners coming in for another 15 days. But citizens and residents will still be allowed to enter the country, as will trucks carrying essential goods. South Korea, widely seen as a success story in dealing with the pandemic, is experiencing a second wave of cases. On Monday, it reported 17 new infections. A holiday weekend in early May appears to have fueled several new clusters in and around the capital Seoul. The director of South Korea's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Jung Eon Kyung, now expects the outbreak to continue for some time. We originally predicted that the second wave would emerge in autumn or winter. However, our forecast that coronavirus infection would decline in the summer turned out to be wrong. As long as people are having close contact with others, we believe infections will continue. An advisor to President Trump has said there's no second wave coming in the U.S. Larry Kudlow, the White House economic advisor, said there were some hot spots, but insisted we're on it, we know how to deal with this stuff now. A major Hindu festival can now go ahead in India on Tuesday after the Supreme Court reversed the ban it imposed because of coronavirus. The annual Rat Yatra, the symbolic procession of statues of three Hindu deities on giant chariots, typically attracts huge crowds. But the court said it was for officials in Odisha to impose restrictions if needed. The world tennis number one, Novak Djokovic, is being criticised for organising an exhibition tournament after two players and two of the coaching staff tested positive for coronavirus. The confirmed cases include Grigor Dimitrov, who fell ill after playing on Saturday, and his opponent, Borna Koric. The Australian tennis star, Nick Kyrgios, who didn't take part, said it had been boneheaded to go ahead. The opening events of the Adria Tour were held in Serbia and Croatia over the last two weekends with no social distancing. As our tennis correspondent, Russell Fuller, explains. The rules have been completely abandoned. We've had players giving each other high fives. There have been handshakes. There have been hugs. There have been parties. They were trying some limbo dancing. It looked like in a nightclub in Belgrade at the end of the first leg of the tour last Sunday. They played football together, basketball together. They've been surrounded by a sea of fans. And you can only wonder how many other people might have been affected. The Red Cross is opening two new isolation field hospitals in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh to support what it calls an alarming and growing number of coronavirus cases. The hospitals will treat Rohingya refugees in the nearby camps as well as local people. A firm in Japan says it's developing a faster and less uncomfortable test to see if people have the virus. Instead of pushing a swab deep into the nose and throat, it uses saliva and can give results in 25 minutes. A trial of a similar test is also getting underway in the UK, with 14,000 key workers and their households sending in weekly samples. Stay safe. That's the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pico, a Kaka'ako Botanical Boutique, now open with locally sourced plants for offices and homes, fresh island flowers, and gifts celebrating Hawaii's nature. Delivery available, PicoHawaii.com. Stay at home, wear a mask, stay at least six feet away from others. All of the new recommendations can cause a lot of psychological stress for all of us. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about how to stay well and deal with the symptoms of isolation, loneliness, anxiety, depression, and more. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, proud to support Hawaii Nature Center for 30 years and their nature adventure camps on Oahu and Maui. On now, registration at hawaiinaturecenter.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. The king of country music, that's what they call George Strait, who has had 60 number one country hits. But before he became king, he was just a young man that joined the U.S. Army back in 1972. He was stationed at Schofield Barracks in Wahiwa, and it was in the islands that he got on stage with a band to play country music, noting that there wasn't much of a scene for the genre here in Hawaii. In a 2019 interview, he admitted that his first gig did not go so well. He says, I got in with these guys, and they ended up firing me. He laughed. I wasn't country enough, my voice, they said. Go figure. Clearly, other people seem to like his voice just fine. After he was discharged in 1975, he returned home to Texas and played in a band called Ace in the Hole, which drew a local following. In the decade that followed, though, he signed a contract with MCA Records and reached commercial success with a series of number one albums back in the 1980s. But back at Schofield, can you tell us the name of the band? who said he didn't have a voice for country music, call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. I think this is how love goes. Check yes or no. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Punahou School is one of the state's largest private schools with close to 4,000 students in grades K-12. to This past week, it rolled out its blueprint for learning for the fall. The school happens to have on staff a former epidemiologist with the Centers for Disease Control. Here's Punahou President Mike Latham. We're really very fortunate. She uh, graduated from Punahou in 1992, uh, did an undergraduate degree in chemistry at Harvard, and then a doctorate in epidemiology at Berkeley, worked for the CDC and the World Health Organization in addition to the Gates Foundation. So she's been, Ginia Liu is her name, she has been a huge asset for us and really just been an instrumental part of our work. You've let the parents know that you've got this plan in place. And, you know, I've been hearing things over the last several weeks about they're going to cancel orchestra and band. You know, they're going to go to one-third in-classroom, two-thirds distance. So what's been shared with the school community? So we sent a full plan to all Punahou parents and families, and it outlines really our, our approach for the fall. Some pieces of that are still in development around some things like athletics or or some of the arts and performance pieces. Uh, but really it outlines two things. The first is to ensure safety, but the second is to provide as much on-campus instruction as absolutely possible. We know that students learn best and our teachers are most effective in that close face-to-face uh, -face environment, but we've got to find a way to do that safely. And for us, the solution to that challenge of both preserving safety and having as many students on, as possible on campus is to calibrate the school's operations and instruction to the health conditions present at the time, both internally and externally. So we've created a series of tiers or levers, and they're actually coded by color, ranging from green to yellow to orange to red. And, and the goal is to be able to move up and down the ladder 
to adjust your instruction and your school's operations as the public health conditions require. So you want to be flexible, and, and you have to find a way to do that. The other key element here is to try to come up with an approach that is as durable as possible. Uh, and by that I mean, you know, back in, in March, I think the assumption that our school was operating under and most schools was operating under was that, you know, if you got a single infection uh, among your population, that really you would have to shut down. And, uh, and I think that we need to come up with a more durable structure than that. And so through the use of uh, a lot of very careful planning and protective equipment and sanitation, as well as having students in discrete cohorts, which limits their engagement with larger populations of other students, our hope is that in the event of an infection, you could quarantine a subset of students safely out of the population, but continue to have the school running. Yes, I talked to another head of school who talked about that, you know, kind of your, you create these bubbles. The students then, you know, eat lunch in the classroom and they play on the mm -hmm. playground with the same group of kids. Right, exactly. How does your plan differ from, you know, the grade school to the middle school to the high school? So, you know, with the youngest kids, their close engagement with the teacher, often with the same teacher throughout the course of the day, is, is what they're accustomed to. And you want to create an environment which is built around that. And younger kids also, they need recess time. They really need to get outside and they need to find ways and time to play together because play is a huge part of the learning that takes place, especially for the elementary school grades. With, with older students, the situation is different because, of course, they're taking multiple classes with different kinds of offerings and, and just the nature of, of what they experience during the course of the day is different. So with the lower grades, to achieve the kind of cohorts we wanted, we had to try to reduce our class sizes to get ourselves down to a situation where we might have a smaller number of kids with the same teacher and then figure out how to keep them in the same physical space most of the day, have them go out for recess, but try to keep them contained in space. For older students, for high school students, it meant taking a situation where, you know, over the course of the day they might have several classes you know, four or five or six different classes and interact with four or five or six different groups of kids. And instead, we're moving to a model that's more like what's often called a block program, where you take a smaller set of courses, but you take them for longer periods of time more intensively. So we've actually divided our school year up into sections, into blocks, and students will take a smaller number of courses for a longer period of hours during the course of the day. And, and again, that's part of the strategy of trying to get cohort size down to the point where you can minimize risk. So is that kind of like multi-tracking within a school? Our, our students will sh sign up for any number of different electives. So one student for the English for a junior uh, in high school, one student might take American literature, another might take creative writing. Third student might take a course looking at the short story. And we wanted to ensure that all of our students would still be able to receive the full range of courses that they signed up for, that we're still going to deliver that curriculum. But we had to find a way for them to take those courses with a smaller number at a given time. Well, that's really interesting because I know when I went off to college and, and we were on a kind of similar block system or a longer period with fewer classes, but you immersed yourself in a particular subject for a longer period. And I found that I learned better in, in that yes. kind of environment. So I was thinking, gosh, I didn't discover this until college. I wish I'd had this, you know, before. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually, I think, your point, you're making a great point, and that may very well be one of the silver linings of, of this kind of approach, is that for some students, that opportunity to have a greater degree of direct exposure and immersion in a given subject for a larger number of hours per day in a more intensive fashion, you know, for a lot of kids, that's something that they really take to. And, and so we've been really encouraged by the extent to which our faculty are thinking really creatively about how to make that happen. Okay, what about middle school? Because teacher that I talked to said, the kids in middle school, they've got to be moving a part of their body every 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, there's that energy. Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting because middle school, as you're suggesting, is sort of this really interesting bridge as, as kids go through this, these major changes in their own maturity and their growth. So at Punahou, in a normal environment, students would be rotating among uh, among different teachers in middle school. And we're trying to find ways so that they can receive the kind of instruction they would previously, but to stay in, in an environment where 
again, those cohorts are going to be smaller. So that, there's a lot more creativity, again, required to figure out how to do that, but it's trying to find ways to keep discrete teams of students together with a smaller subset of teachers. And the hand-wringing that I was hearing about orchestra and band. Well, you know, I think we're going to do our very best to continue to deliver the arts within our curriculum, and it may have to look a little bit different than it would before, but I think with social distancing, with um, perhaps some greater degrees of online or hybrid work, we're going to find some creative solutions solutions to that. We, you know, we certainly wouldn't want to give up music altogether. We certainly wouldn't want to give up theater or dance or other key elements of our arts program. But we're going to have to find a way to ensure that we can do that safely. And that, that may mean that we're going to have to do things that are going to look and feel differently. Just because I think the, the health implications of having, for example, close choral singing in the traditional format, or you could think about wind instruments, you know, there are some significant risks there when we just have to face those realistically and carefully. Now, you have had part of your campus under construction. Yeah, we just finished a major construction project last fall and opened a new area of our campus, and that's for grades two through five. But that project is now complete, and so we don't have any major construction projects underway at the time. But uh, that configuration of the classrooms, I know that was taking a different approach to learning, mm-hmm. uh, different from what had been in the past when it was a sure. one-room schoolhouse, right? That's right. And then the, the large halls. Yeah. And because of the physical distancing part, and it's a little confusing because we hear six feet, but then maybe three feet for students. So yeah, how are you looking yeah. at that? So that's, a, that's a good question. The Department of Health Guidelines, the state, state of Hawaii, Department of Health guidelines uh, are recommending three to six feet. And so we can certainly attain that. I think there's also some question, for example, whether or not students are facing the same direction. If kids are facing the same direction, they can be a little closer than if they're actually facing each other, which requires greater distance. But we're going to use a lot of personal protective equipment in the course of the instructional day as well. That'll mean masks. It'll it'll mean observing the kind of careful protocols, hand washing, sanitation, hygiene, to, to try to reduce risk of transmission as well. Okay, and hopefully all the students will have those habits ingrained after several months of isolation. That will be the key. Exactly right. That will be the key. You know, in the past, sometimes it's a challenge to make sure your students are wearing their ID cards, and now they've got to wear their masks. There you go. And then as far as tuition, what's the snapshot for Punahou and yeah. financial aid? So, so at Punahou, we recognize that this would have a significant impact on, on our families. And so we have actually increased the allocation for financial aid by 50%. Ordinarily, in a given year, we allocate about $8 million uh, for student financial aid. Uh, and this year, we've budgeted up to $12 million. Um, and... Uh, so far, I think uh, we have certainly seen an increase in the percentage of students who are seeking financial aid. Some of them are families that have received it in the past and are coming forward indicating that their circumstances have changed and they need greater help. Uh, and some, really, it's the first time they've ever applied. And, and we're really very fortunate and very grateful to our donors and to you know, those who've decided to invest in in Punahou's work in this area and uh, provided the kind of financial aid that allows us to meet student need. But our goal uh, is to ensure that all of our students remain enrolled and to make it financially possible for that to happen. That was Mike Latham, president of Punahou School, talking about its plan for getting back on campus. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be checking in with schools across the state about their plans for the fall. And later in the hour, we hear about a lofty national ranking for an East Honolulu High School. reality check today looks at fledgling activism. Honolulu Civil Beats education writer Suvan Lee joins us today looking back at one of the rallies of late. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. How are you? I'm good. So I understand you were out there with the masses for that Black Lives Matter rally. Uh, Yes, I I was out there covering it for Civil Beat. Um, Yeah, the rally that um, happened a couple Saturdays ago on June 6th. Yeah, that was quite a showing. It really was. 
Yeah, it was amazing. It, it was um, officially the count was 10,000. Um, and it's it's interesting because even the, the teens who organized the event didn't expect such a such a crowd. So it was um, just amazing to see them pull it off. So you were able to track down the organizers. Right. And I, I think something that I didn't appreciate at the time, and I'm sure many others did not, was that this event came through in about a week. These teens, many of whom didn't know each other, um, really started something on an Instagram group chat just to really process their 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 thoughts and emotions about what was happening around the country uh, following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And what they did is they came together via social media to really... Um, uh, to, to, to think about and organize an event to sort of commemorate the um, just this, this feeling that was taking place and to protest um, police brutality um, right here in Honolulu. So they organized via social media and planned this rally in, in a week. I was just so amazed because I thought, oh, right. You can add that to your college application, you know, to help to organize, uh, you know, a rally with this size. Uh, sure, sure. And I think what these high schoolers, um, you know, many of them, um, I mean, they're, they have very personal experiences and perspectives being black individuals who um, spoke to me in our interviews about how they have siblings or uh, relatives who, you know, they, they're very concerned about their safety. And so this is a very, you know, personal issue to them. And they really wanted to to come together and 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 do this here in this city because they live here and they're afraid for their friends and family on the mainland as well. So it was it was quite powerful to hear their thoughts about why this matters to them so much. And, you know, in your story, you, you mentioned how they kind of got together before this march and they were just kind of getting to know each other, you know, sharing or, or creating TikTok videos. Um, uh, and it was it's just interesting to, to see this kind of activism emerge because of, you know, what happened over the weekend with the rallies, with the, the kids, you know, with the K-pop and TikTok, uh, you know, targeting the Trump rallies. You're right. I, I think that uh, for some generations removed, it, it might be easy to view youth or young people as po- politically disengaged or inactive or disengaged from what's going on in the climate today. But I think that the protests that have occurred around Black Lives Matter in, in recent weeks uh, proves that otherwise. Uh, certainly a lot of the protests that have happened around the country have been organized by young people. And as uh, some of my interviews have, have taught me, many of the protest movements of decades past have been organized by young people. So this is not a, a unique phenomenon, but I think just uh, having heard the voices, the local voices here, uh, you know, was quite inspiring. And um uh, teaches us that there there is a lot of youth activism and engagement present today. Now, uh, uh, some of the student organizers were from Radford, and I know that uh, school community taps into the military families in that area. So they, I'm sure they've just got a, a variety of experiences, you know, as they live around the world. Definitely. Uh, Radford High School um, has a very high military student population. I think about two-thirds of its student body is uh, military um, um, adjacent. And so it's it's they they have moved around a lot these teens and while they haven't grown up in Hawaii they've lived in various places so the the group chat was started by teens at Radford High and it came to incorporate other area high schools including um, a young woman from Moanalua High and Waipahu High and 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 it just started started to incorporate all these different voices and eventually this group chat like was filled with dozens of teens but then it kind of whittled down to about a dozen teens who were really sort of the core and most passionate voices on this dialogue. And so that those are that's the group who sort of went forward and organized the rally. All right. Well, good for them. <laughs> Thanks so much, Suvon. You're welcome. Thanks. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org for that story and more.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. On this week's On the Media, your view of the coronavirus depends on where you stand, literally. Yeah, well, you can't be in the second wave if you never left the first wave. But the picture looks very different depending on where you are in the country. This week, waves, viral and political, on the next On the Media from WNYC. This evening at 7, following The Body Show. Following our conversation last week with Big Island Mayor Harry Kim, one listener called her talkback line to share her frustration about her son's unemployment. My name is Sarah Vintage. I live in Hawaii County on the Big Island. My comment is Harry Kim is on the air right now talking about how he's spending his money. I suggest you send it on unemployment. My son has been unemployed since March 13th. They say that he did not pay any taxes. In 2018 or 19, we have sent in proof that he paid his taxes, has worked both years full-time, sent in his W-2s, his pay stubs, certified mail to Honolulu. They kicked it back to the local office. No one answers the phone. It's constantly busy. You cannot get on the website. This has been three months of someone who worked full-time, paid his taxes, has proof that he paid his taxes, and we cannot get to the unemployment office. If this doesn't make you upset, I don't know what does. And listener Stanley uh, Wokumoto has questions about Trans-Pacific Travel Reopening. He writes, if health insurance companies such as HMSA will not cover the cost for travel-related coronavirus tests, the traveler to Hawaii is responsible to pay the entire cost. What impact will this have on tourists visiting Hawaii and on returning residents? The returning resident would need to coordinate with a testing location in an unfamiliar city to schedule the test and possibly price shop, as the cost can vary. Also, if the state will offer coronavirus tests upon landing at a Hawaii airport, what will be the out-of-pocket cost to the traveler? If health insurance companies will not cover this travel-related coronavirus test, is the out-of-pocket cost the same for a non-resident versus a resident? Hey, thanks for the feedback. We share your frustration. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, reach out via social media or on Facebook or Twitter, or call our talkback line, 792-8217. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time to check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence to hear about what a notable telescope in Chile has been able to observe off of a far-off massive star. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our troubled and tiny planet. And as usual, to help us navigate, we've got the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We're welcoming him back right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week's Stargazers, look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky. They both rise in the east around 8 p.m. The moon this week will be a mere crescent, and of course will create conditions that are perfect for stargazing. And I know one thing that's definitely happening, a observatory in Chile just continues to have development after development, and I know somebody who's about to tell us about one of the latest. <laughs> Indeed. A remarkable insight into a familiar object this week from the ALMA submillimeter array in Chile. It has been imaging the supergiant star Antares, located in the constellation of Scorpius. In Hawaii, we know this constellation by the name Kamagao Nui Maui, or Maui's fishhook. We know Antares as Lehuacona. Alma's images are of the surface of this celestial supergiant and are the most detailed map of any star that has ever been produced, not including our own sun, of course. The star itself is around 600 million miles in diameter and weighs in at around 12 times the mass of the sun. 
and fill us in on why this star is of interest. What's fascinating about this star is its fierce stellar winds that drive elements such as carbon and nitrogen out into space. And as we know, these elements, once expelled from the star and thrust into the interstellar medium, go on to form other stars, planets, and in the case of our own solar system, life. I'm thinking when you map the atmosphere, you get a little idea what's happening inside, too. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And in the case of Lehuacona, it's old and approaching the end of its life. So the atmosphere has become very turbulent, with outer layers mixing with inner layers right before our eyes. And so we can develop our understanding of the late lifetime evolution of giant stars. And after all I've learned from you so far, Chris, I'm thinking because this thing is giant and old, it's going to go with a bang. Indeed. It will end its life in a supernova explosion, which may be visible from the Earth when the time comes, which probably won't be for a few million years. Well, that's one we will not be waiting for. <laughs> and a uh, big mahalo to you for another great report. Christopher Phillips, thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And we'll catch you guys, and we'll catch you next week with another edition of Stargazer and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com For today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look back at a country music icon who had a humble start at Schofield Barracks. George Strait was born in Texas, and at the age of 19, he enlisted in the Army, where he was briefly stationed on Oahu and played in a country music band. After his service, he returned to Texas and pursued his fledging career, but didn't reach commercial success until he signed a solo contract with MCA Records in 1981. He would later go on to record a series of number one and platinum albums and in 1989 and 1990 was named the Country Music Association's Entertainer of the Year. He would go on to have an acting career and release several more al albums. In 2003 he received the National Medal of the Arts and in 2014 he played his final show in front of a hundred thousand fans in Dallas, Texas. And to think that before all of that, the country crooner started his career as part of an army-sponsored band out of Schofield Barracks called Rambling Country. And to think that they told him that he didn't sound country enough. Well, our winner today is Hutch Hutchinson. Uh, he plays bass. He lives in Haiku. And he says he's played with greats like Bonnie Raitt. And he's also played at the Crater Festival. So you got it right. Hutch Hutchinson. And that is uh, our uh, our quiz for the day. Uh, if you have an idea for a quiz, email it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I was a young troubadour when I wrote in on a song. Cougar Pride, a new ranking from U.S. News & World Report, has Kaiser High School as number one in its public school rankings for proficiency in math and reading, and it's tied nationally for that top spot. Yes, you heard right, Kaiser is at the head of the class. Here's Principal Justin Mew sharing the news, addressing the graduating class of 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, collegiate commencement exercises traditionally celebrate academic accomplishments. Allow me to announce that the Kaiser high school class of 2020 has 49 valedictorians and 98 honor graduates. The Washington Post ranked Kaiser High as Hawaii's most rigorous and challenging public high school. We are number two behind Yolani. The U.S. News and World Report ranks us as the number one public high school in the state of Hawaii and tied for number one in the nation with respect to proficiency in math and reading. Go Cougars! I am so very proud of you and thank you for representing the blue and gold in academics. And Principal Justin Mew says the ranking shows what's possible. I want to be humble about this, but it was, well, best in the nation for, for this part. It shows the hard work that was done by everybody, by the faculty, parents. And, you know, of course, the students have to respond to our work. If they don't respond, 
uh, it doesn't matter because in the end, it's the students who take the exams, not us. So how do you think Kaiser's managed to do this? From what I could gather, the data was from the school year 2017-2018. takes U.S. News a couple of years to process everything. So when I reflected back, uh, I remembered uh, what we were doing. Uh, so so uh, our school was moving into, you know, we we're an international baccalaureate world school, and we were moving, we had moved into all students entering grade 9 and 10 are an interna- international baccalaureate. It's called Middle Years Program, so we did that. And what that meant was we had to get an exemption from our state about the English language arts materials. So a couple of years prior to that, we had begun the process to justify why we think our materials uh, would be uh, more appropriate for Kaiser, especially since we are implementing the Middle Years Program. Uh, We did the same with mathematics. You know, the state did have materials for us to use, and what we opted to do was uh, we would use the materials as resources, but the, with the Middle East program, it's how you uh, teach the, the ideas uh, uh, in a more holistic way. So that, was, uh, that effort was going through as well. Uh, we also, you know, like you said, we're on the rise, but we just couldn't, uh, uh, I guess, get over the top as compared to other public schools. So we tried this strategy is we looked at uh, the students individually and we targeted certain students to say, hey, you know, you're close. You're close to being proficient. Let's go target these group of students. And uh, not to say we neglected anybody else. That's not true. What we did was we did a lot of differentiation and whatnot to help uh, get all students proficient with a target on those who are right at the borderline, just a little bit more than you can be proficient. The ranking covers math and reading, right? Yes. So that's why the language arts side, which is the reading, we needed to, we felt that the the state's materials, we felt that uh, we needed to get an exemption so we could use materials that we felt could meet the proficiency standards plus the international baccalaureate. So Uh, additional resources. Yes. It just must be so gratifying, particularly to your teachers, to know that what they've been working on has reflected in the success. Yes. We also did, uh, we're the only high school to have all three international baccalaureate programs. They're called middle years. Uh, what the highest level is called the uh, diploma program. Then we just were authorized uh, to implement the uh, it's called the International Baccalaureate Career-Related Program. And then of the one for all students in grade 9 and 10 is called the Middle Years Program. We did this as a complex for the, middle, for the IB. The point is, should, as we're getting authorized, that's like a school improvement effort. So we were working really hard, and I know the teachers had to be pulled a lot, challenged and stretched. So, you know, you can't just sit back and let things happen. You have to, uh, there's a process that you follow so that, you can be authorized, which which looks at our teaching and learning and uh, how we're looking at the international standards. I think you put all that together, Catherine, uh, that hard work would say, see, it did pay off. Our students did. Uh, and the magic of the classroom teacher face-to-face will be to motivate the students and to, uh, to figure out how they're doing towards those ends. So to go back to what you said, yes, I think now they can sit and say, look, that effort was was worth it. Now, your graduating seniors kind of rose to the top, too. You've got so many valedictorians. Yes. <laughs> to talk so about that. They rise up to meet the challenge. Yes, we have the percentage of valedictorians is quite high throughout the, the past you know, few years here at Kaiser. So it's more than just the number as compared to other schools. Look at the percentage of students who become valedictorians. I have here 49. Yes, 49. Out of 270-some-odd possible. That's a really high percentage. To be valedictorian is rough, but to be an undergraduate is not that simple either. So I I think almost half the class became undergraduates per DOE standards. Yeah, 70 summa cum laude, 38 magna cum laude, 48 cum laude. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome, yeah. Yeah. Go Cougars. Go Cougars. (laughs) And I'm glad for them because, you know, when you have a ranking like this, your diploma means a lot more, in my opinion. It means a lot more to, hopefully, to the students, but the universities and scholarship folks to say, "Oh, you're a Kaiser graduate. Oh, yeah, you're you're top notch here. Uh, I will look at you because you went to a, a rigorous and challenging school." 
So I hope that it helps our students uh, meet their goals for post-secondary and career. Now I have to ask, because you were also principal over at uh, NEW yes. Intermediate. So are, are a lot of the kids that you taught and supervised under your time at NEW Valley, are they seniors now? Actually, so that year that uh, uh, where we got this ranking, that was the last group of students that I, I had, they were sixth grade uh, at the time. Then I came to over to Kaiser. So, uh, uh, no, right now this year, seniors, no, they were, uh, they were not. I w- I've been here for seven years, so no. But it's great to see. It was, it's really great to see them. Uh, those that I knew, uh, as I, I sat as uh, the principal here at Kaiser. But, but the, the test scores that were mm-hmm. reflected were they f- some of the kids from the middle school time? Absolutely, yes. So, uh, I would even. Uh, give a shout out to the entire Kaiser complex because mostly all of the students, not all, but most of them came up to the Kaiser complex of schools from elementary to middle to high. So it's a complex-wide effort is the way I look at it. So I'm sure other principals, other schools are going to say, gosh, if they can get this ranking and be top, you know, or tied in the country, right, and top in Hawaii, why can't we? It gives hope that it can be done in Hawaii. It gives hope you know, when you hear public school bashing and above, we'll say English and math, it shows that it can be done. There is hope in Hawaii. And, you know, we're all part of this one big system, the, uh, the Hawaii Department of Education, and because of that, we were able to do what we could do. So I would agree, Catherine, that uh, other public schools can say the same thing. Hey, if Kaiser can do it, we can do it. Kaiser High School Principal Justin Mew sharing the news about its proficiency ranking in math and reading tied for number one public school in the country. Go Cougars! And that's it for today. Tomorrow we hear more about back-to-school plans that are taking shape. Do you have a story idea to share? Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation. Or head to our Facebook page and remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.